1: From KQED.
2: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A ground shifting Supreme Court term came to an end this morning with the release of the court's final decisions and the historic swearing in of Ketanji Brown Jackson to replace Stephen Breyer. And what a term it was. The dramatic and unprecedented move by the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs to take away an established constitutional right, in this case to abortion, was actually one of several bombshell rulings in cases on guns, religion, and the environment. Today, we look at some of those other high court opinions, discuss how much they've changed the legal landscape, and what they say about how this court will wield its power moving forward. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The nation's highest court this morning handed President Biden a victory in allowing him to lift the Trump-era immigration policy that required asylum seekers to remain in Mexico, in some cases for years, while their claims were processed. But the Supreme Court also dealt a blow to Biden's climate goals in a ruling with broad implications for environmental regulation. Already in this term like no other, the court has taken away Americans' constitutional right to an abortion, struck down a state's longstanding gun regulation, and broadly expanded religious rights. This hour, we look at some of the court's most significant rulings and the sweeping changes they bring. Joining me now, Margaret Russell, professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law. Margaret Russell, so glad to have you on. Thank you. Also, Rory Little is with us, professor of law at UC Hastings Law School and a former attorney with the Department of Justice. Rory Little, so glad to have you back as well.
3: Very happy to be here. Thank you.
2: And Rory, before I get your and Margaret's reflections on this overall term, I do want to ask you quickly about that environmental ruling handed down just this morning in West Virginia versus the EPA. Can you talk about the significance of that case?
3: Yes, uh, West Virginia versus EPA is one of those cases in this very conservative court <clears throat> where the result isn't as bad as it could have been, but it's not great. Um, what it does is uh, restrict, if you will, the authority, not just of the EPA, but of any administrative agency to make major policy changes without some kind of very clear direction from Congress. That's a change in doctrine in the past where agencies have had a lot of broad discretion <clears throat> in the particular case it, it vacates uh the the biden it, effort uh to restrict coal uh, generating power plants um although the environmental benefits of that regulation have already been achieved and there's still more to be done uh, so the future implications of that are uh yet to be seen but at least they did not wipe out the chevron doctrine which would say that agencies have broad discretion to do lots of things So it's better than it could have been. And it was written by Justice Chief Justice Roberts, not by one of the sort of four really conservative justices.
2: Yeah. The three liberal justices in their dissent, they wrote that the majority had stripped the EPA of the power to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. Would you agree with that assessment?
3: Well, I certainly, I certainly agree that it has restricted the EPA's authority. I don't think it's stripped them of authority, but they're going to have to act within the broad outlines of what Congress has said in the statutes. The real problem is that Congress isn't doing anything, really about anything these days. So the idea that Congress could maybe give more specific direction is pretty unlikely. So in that sense, it's a very restrictive opinion. And Justice Kagan is certainly right that it's a major change.
2: Right. Tying it to Congress. And what does that achieve? You know, some legal scholars have noted that they feel a certain disdain from this court's majority uh, with regard to administrative agencies, not just the EPA, but other federal administrative agencies like the CDC, for one. Do you think that exists?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Justice Gorsuch, uh, I believe, writes a separate opinion today where he says, look, agencies are out of control. The administrative state is no good i mean this goes all the way back to the 1930s when roosevelt uh, used administrative agencies in a brand new way to get us out of the worst economic depression in our history Um, and conservatives have always been unhappy with that uh, liberal democratic policy of the 1930s much of it today is accepted as reality Um, and in fact the other decision this morning about immigration says that the administration does have a lot of authority to do discretionary things in the realm of immigration. But yeah, this is a conservative court and they don't like progressive uh, policies.
2: Margaret Brennan, did you want to comment on that at all? And if you would like, you can also just give us your overall impressions of this court based, Margaret Russell, I'm sorry, over, overall with regard to the kinds of rulings that we saw them do over the course of their term.
4: Yes, certainly. Thank you. And and first, I, I do want to thank my colleague, Rory Little, for probably putting the most hopeful spin possible on a very dire situation. Um, this court has made it clear, I think now, that uh, they see themselves as the rollback court. And by that, I mean just a couple of things, which we'll talk about later. Um, one, which is exemplified by the abortion decision and, and in a way by the EPA decision, is a, uh, is, is not just a, a skepticism, but, but a real hostility um, to the rights and to the rulings of earlier courts, mm. which might have been called the Warren Court, which is very liberal. This is going to be the rollback court. And I think we can see clearly from this term's decisions what areas have already been overruled and chipped at, and there are more to come in the cases they've accepted.
2: Well, let me ask you about when you talk about the fact that they do not seem to have a great deal of adherence to or respect for stare decisis. Can you talk about how, I feel like this became extremely obvious in their rulings in religious cases, especially involving the separation of church and state, there was Carson v. Macon and Kennedy v. Bremerton. Margaret Russell, if you could start with Carson, and and what the Supreme Court ruled about Maine, would love to hear your impressions of that case.
4: Yes, absolutely. So this is a case in which Maine um, sought to regulate uh, the the disbursement, the availability of government funds to. A number to private schools, including religious schools. And this was based on some pretty well-grounded precedent going back several decades, in which the idea of Congress under the First Amendment making no establishment of religion means today that any major support of religious institutions or enterprise, including, for example, the funding of schools, uh, perhaps the uh, the payment of tuition for, for children, which is a subject of the Lemon case, all of that lowers the wall of separation between church and state, which makes it worse for everyone, including religious people, because it leads to um, disagreement, uh, very difficult, ex- excessive entanglements, et cetera. And so that idea of the wall of separation in the main case has come tumbling down very significantly. And what reasoning
2: Rory Little did Gorsuch who wrote the opinion give for making that wall tumble down?
3: (laughs) Well, I I have to go back to what professor Russell said, you know, the rollback court. Some people are calling it the throwback court because they're throwing us back a hundred years in some cases, Mm. uh, Back to the 19th century in other cases, the abortion decision takes us back to the time when women couldn't vote and had no rights uh, civilly at all. Uh, so it, they are throwing us back. In the religion case, you know, Justice Gorsuch says it's religious discrimination to not make state aid available if a parent wants to send their child to a religious school. If you're making it available to parents to send their kids to some kind of other school besides the public school, Uh, you got to make it available for religious schools. So they're basically using the free exercise clause of the First Amendment to mandate that states fund uh, religious education. That's a throwback, uh, uh, as Margaret said, to, uh, you know, what, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, And it, it is reflective of all four of these religion cases that the free exercise of religion has suddenly become the sort of most important right anybody has. And they're using it to trump all kinds of other ideas that have been well accepted for a good 50 years with the separation of church and state.
2: Yes. And I should correct myself. It was Roberts who wrote the opinion in Carson v. Macon. It was Gorsuch who wrote the opinion in Bremerton. Could you talk about that case, uh, Professor Little?
3: Well, yeah, we call it the praying football coach, right? This is a coach who decided to... um, you know, pray at the 50-yard line after big football games. Um, He said, oh, it's a private exercise of my religion. Uh, But it sort of coincidentally didn't uh, turn out to be private. Uh, Other players would go out there. A lot of people thought the players felt they had to because he's the coach and he decides who plays. Um, And after a while, it attracted a lot of attention. The school tried to say, you can't do this. You can't uh, do this religious display at the 50-yard line of the football game. Uh, even if it is right after the game ends, uh, because we're afraid of what this could lead to. And indeed, there was another group of Satanists who asked for equal access to the 50-yard line after this became somewhat public in in Bremerton School District in Washington State. Um, And the court said, no, it's a private, free exercise of religion. Justice Sotomayor, you got to give her a lot of credit here. She says, wait a minute, on, on the facts, this isn't private, and she has a a photograph in her separate dissenting opinion of the crowd around this football coach at the end of the game. Um, So, you know, what's the school administration gonna do now to try to sort of balance the many people who might say, well, we want religious free exercise too. Uh, We're gonna have a a ceremony on every yard line of the football game, uh, apparently. Uh, It's no happy time to try to run a school. And in the past, it would have been easy because you just say, look, it's religion, you can't do that during a school event.
2: Right. And, and there were also parents who were saying that students, players felt coerced to join this coach's prayer circles because they felt like if they didn't, there would be retribution, maybe even in terms of playing time for them on the field. What did essentially Gorsuch right. have to say about that?
3: Well, this is a this is a case they should not have granted, basically. They should have just let it go because they just disagree on the facts. Um, I mean, Gorsuch says, well, there's really no evidence of coercion here. Um, you know, it's interesting. Justice Kavanaugh during oral argument, Kavanaugh is a youth athletic coach and his sideline. And he said, don't players feel a lot of pressure to go out there with the coach because he makes the decision. Um, he didn't say a word in this opinion. He joined Gorsuch's opinion. They just rejected on the facts. And when you have disagreement about facts, that's not a good case to try to make national constitutional law based on.
2: Hmm. We're talking with Roy Little, professor of law at UC Hastings Law School, and Margaret Russell, professor of constitutional law at Santa Clara University School of Law. We're talking about the Supreme Court term and the cases that have been decided and their massive impacts and asking you, our listeners, to join the conversation with your questions about the Supreme Court's recent opinions and what these opinions represent to you you can email forum at kqed.org, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or at KQED forum. or you can call us, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what
5: we're talking
2: about tomorrow. We'll hear from Ibram X. Kendi about his new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, a Guide for Parents and Caregivers. Plus, we'll chat with astronomer Andrew Fracknoy about the celestial wonders you can catch this 4th of July weekend. And you can email your astronomy questions ahead of the show to forum at kqed.org. This hour, we're talking about the significant cases from this term of the Supreme Court with Rory Little, law professor at UC Hastings School of Law, and Margaret Russell, professor of law at Santa Clara University. And you, our listeners, are joining us with your thoughts or questions about the Supreme Court's opinions this term. What you think the court's rulings say uh, about where they are, where they're headed, how they're wield power. You can email your thoughts and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. And as always, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And this listener writes, what do these religion cases mean for people who are not religious? Why is it okay for there to be prayer circles at a public school Margaret Russell, uh, if you want to take that, and also curious to your thoughts on the point that um, Roy Little was raising before the break about all these different religious groups who were saying, "Okay, well, if that's the case, I want to be able to practice my religion at a public school uh, during school hours and events, which I think really does raise the question of which religion in this case? Is is the court going to, to grant this for all
4: faiths? Uh, Yes. So first addressing Rory Little's point, I I think it's clear that the rollback and the reversal of this particular um, decision of separating church and state is having already an intended effect. Um, They are test cases going up, the coach and many other cases. They are explicitly test cases that are being presented to give the conservative majority an opportunity to roll back on establishment clause jurisprudence that individual justices have uh, very critically discussed in other cases for years. So what that means for people of no religion or people of non-majority religions, um, particularly I think Christians, is um, is that you're getting the message that this is a Christian nation. The entire purpose of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution was to acknowledge a secular nation, not because people don't deserve to have religious beliefs, but because those shall not be intermingled with government power. And the kind of uh, different set uh, confusion and upset is really goes back to the founders, frankly. That is what was envisioned if we did not separate church and state.
2: But yet at the same time, uh, Roy Little, Gorsuch goes back to history, basically reference to historical practice and understanding. He says that his ruling and his view is based on what the founding fathers would have thought.
3: Right. Well, this is a throwback element of, of this term, is not just in this case, but in a number of cases, they've said, we're going to reflect a society that existed in 1789 or 1868, when the 14th Amendment was enacted, uh, and and that what's happened today just doesn't matter. I mean, the Founding Fathers did not have uh, a, a lot of different religions. There were no Muslims in that group. There were no Jews in that group. There were no people who were atheists in that group, so far as we know. They were all Christian white men with property, um, and and the idea that the Constitution must reflect what they thought when they just used vague phrases like free exercise of religion or establishment uh, is, is a throwback to a different time. I just want to point out that they've already granted review in the next term, so next fall, in a case called 303 Creative about a website designer who says, I don't agree religiously with same-sex marriage. And so I will design websites for people, but not if it's a same-sex marriage kind of website. That case is going to come next fall. And if the free exercise of religion is this powerful, uh, we're going to see more results that we are unhappy with in terms of accommodating a diversity of views in our society today.
2: Let me go to caller Isabel in Sacramento. Hi, Isabel hi um
1: I just wanted to call and basically um, ask a question about the whole freedom of religion aspect um, I do totally agree that uh, this country kind of when they say freedom of religion they really do mean more towards a Christian religion um, but I always had the question when they were when they started talking about overturning roe versus Wade. Um, the question popped into my head that why can't we argue that um, Having based on an atheist belief that having uh, Roe versus Wade overturned infringes upon our own religious beliefs. And I did research on like what constitutes a religious sect, and there's not really any kind of like official um, certification, for lack of a better word, uh, for how to become an official religious like sect. And so, I'd, what would happen if like someone worked yeah. in Sue, Texas, for example? Um, for infringing upon my religious belief as an atheist, that as an atheist, I have the explicit freedom to get an abortion, and that is part of my religion.
2: Isabel, it's a great question. I want to put that to Margaret Russell. I mean, Margaret, if someone says my religion says that uh, abortion is required to protect my health, right, uh, what rights do they have?
4: Well, I think in this particular area, as I understand the question, religion is not... Um, at issue on either side in terms of what is said on paper. I mean, I do agree that uh, many people have religious beliefs that that may have driven the movement that produced this decision. However, um, Dobbs, the case that overruled Roe versus Wade, specifically attacks the substantive to process argument that there is a right to privacy. And so regardless of religion, the court is saying that uh, is not a constitutional right, we will leave it to the states. Now, when you get to the state legislatures, state legislatures are also not supposed to act uh, with any favoritism um, or hostility to religion or non-religion, such as atheism. So the argument that you raised would really need it, need to be raised not as a religious argument, but I think as very similar to um, the the arguments that, are, that were posed in Dobbs in favor of um, a woman's right to choose.
3: You know, we should point out that there is already a case of a Jewish person who says that under their Jewish religious tenets, uh, an abortion is actually required in certain circumstances. So we're gonna see that come up uh, in the future. It's not, it's not at the Supreme Court yet. Um, and and it, to answer Isabel's question very directly, the justices in the conservative majority in these cases simply would say, if you're an atheist, that's not religion. You are not protected by the First Amendment religion clauses at all, uh, because religion requires something. Uh, and then exactly how they would define it is hard to imagine, uh, the majority of them being uh, Roman Catholics, of course.
2: Well, as you say, Judaism definitely qualifies. <laughs> we'll see how far their religious uh, freedoms really go also this this move to look at at history tradition um what the founding fathers intended this was also used as a real justification in the bruin case the case that uh looked at a 100-year-old new york concealed carry law i wonder if you could speak to that a, a little bit rory a little
3: sure um <laughs> you know one thing we're learning is that uh, lawyers and justices are not very good historians. Um, and and a lot of historians say that. There are amicus briefs filed by historians who say, basically, you're just getting the history wrong. Um, and then, of course, what the historical people would have believed in 1789 about our current situation with gun violence in urban centers around the country, uh, we, we just don't know because they didn't think about it. Um, the idea that... Um, somehow the right to bear arms includes the right to carry an AR-15 in public uh, just isn't clear in the text. It's not explicit. Uh, It's got to require interpretation. And if the history is wrong, and Justice Breyer has done a lot to show that the history is wrong, that there were regulations in the 1780s and 90s in Boston that controlled guns and uh, ammunition and firepower and things like that. Uh, So whose history counts? Um, But even if the history counts, uh, why that would require us to do something today is sort of uh, a matter of interpretation. And this is where it drives me a little bit crazy because they say it's not mentioned in the Constitution, so there's no right to abortion in the Dobbs case. But then AR-15 isn't mentioned in the Constitution either, but somehow the Second Amendment clearly means you've got a right to carry it. They pick and choose what they think is clear in history and in text uh, based on, frankly, their ideology. And that is very disconcerting to people who depend on the court to try to be non-ideological when they decide cases.
2: Yes. Well, let me go to another Sacramento caller, Minga in Sacramento. Hi, Minga.
6: Hi there. Uh, I'd like to just uh, come back to the religion cases again. Um, I would like to—I agree totally that history is being selectively utilized, and I want to make sure we don't make the same mistake by uh, attributing Christianity to all of our founders, because really there was a bunch of deists in this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, for example, and uh, many of the founders, like uh, James Madison and John Adams, wrote that this is not a Christian nation, and it's in the in some of their, uh, their uh, quotes that we utilized from that era. But the other thing I wanted to comment on is the, the establishment clause is being beaten up, really, by this uh, current 6-3 majority. Uh, I uh, have done many workshops for teachers and helping them to uh, understand that we needed to be neutral between, across the religions and also between religion and non-religion. And so many of the articles and workshops and things that I've done are being erased by this current court because mm. they have elevated the uh, free exercise clause above the establishment clause. They've always been in tension with one another, uh, but really uh, they're ignoring a lot of, uh, of establishment clause law. It's mm. very scary.
2: Well, well, Minga, thanks for sharing your experience and also I think what you are saying uh, Underlines a lot of what our guests have been saying as well with regard to the Establishment Clause and the free exercise of religion. Uh, Let me go to this comment from Maddie, who also writes, It is presumptuous to say the founders were all Christian men. They were rationalists. They intentionally did not mention God or Christianity in our founding documents. Thomas Jefferson owned a Quran. We're talking with Margaret Russell, Professor of Constitutional Law at Santa Clara University School of Law, and Rory Little, Professor of Law at UC Hastings Law School, and a former attorney with the Department of Justice. And you, our listeners, are sharing your reactions to this Supreme Court term, particularly its most recent rulings, by emailing forum at kqed.org finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by giving us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. A few comments we're getting on the EPA ruling this morning. Karen writes, can you please talk more to the EPA ruling? It makes my stomach hurt to think they are making it harder to help fix the climate crisis. We only have this one planet. I'm so mad and sad that the court is... Going away from things that would help our world environmentally, socially, and just bringing more kindness. And Pam writes, today's decision about what administrative agencies can regulate is just about as upsetting as the decision in Dobbs. Today's decision is a tragedy for combating climate change, but it's also going to have huge ramifications for everything government agencies do in order to maintain accountability. I don't think we're going to realize how huge and horrible a decision it is for a couple of years it is interesting, Rory Little, how, in many ways, the court was ruling with regard to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Power Plan, and the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, on on really a a rule that hadn't even been implemented yet. But yet they were so eager to take this case and and make this make this basically this statement about the power of administrative agencies.
3: Well, they absolutely should not have ruled in this case. I mean, it's absurd. There is no regulation currently in force. Right. You know, the Trump administration reversed something that the Obama administration had done. The Biden administration came in, reversed the Trump thing and then said, look, we'll take it back under study. So so to say, oh, there's a case or controversy here when there's no regulation even enforced. So they should not have reached this. I mean, I, and really the Chief Justice, I think bends over backwards to find a way to reach the merits. Um, when you get to the merits of this case, I, I just want to sort of make a point about it. I agree that it's very bad right now for the power of the EPA to regulate things having to do with climate change. I totally agree with that. but. We do have to remember that three years ago, there was a different administration in charge and they put different people in charge of the agencies. And I don't want those agencies to have carte blanche to do whatever they want when they're not in line with what I ideologically want them to do. And that's what's disturbing here. This feels like an ideological ruling against somehow the EPA and progressive climate change regulation. Um, But it is in some sense protective if uh, the administration flips and and dangerously, uh, the, it may flip in the next couple of years.
2: Hmm. Well, Pete writes, and this is regarding the Bremerton case, if a coach is by constitutional right allowed to celebrate his religion in public, then wouldn't that affect which coach is hired? Does this create a discriminatory atmosphere around the hiring of coaches and any number of public employees? Margaret Russell, what do you think?
4: An interesting point and it, it is an important secondary effect that may evolve. Uh again, uh the establishment clause was designed to keep these kinds of disagreements from operating in the public sphere. And it is true what the
2: well, Margaret Russell, did we lose you there? Uh Margaret, you may have muted your line there. Um, but uh while we try to get Margaret back on. What are your thoughts on Pete's question about discrimination and hiring as a byproduct? Well, you know, story?
3: I, I do think it's a valid question. And the idea that a football coach, in some sense, uh, can celebrate their religion. Uh, and and by the way, m- many of the parents and the people in the Bremerton School District were supportive of this coach because they are themselves religious, although they weren't watching Uh, a different religion, right? They were, these weren't Muslims asking to celebrate. Maybe they wouldn't have been so supportive. Uh, You know, the the idea of discrimination on sorts of lots of characteristics is sort of out there in an implicit way, implicit bias as a reality. Um, You will have to see what the next case says, I guess is all I could respond with that. But it's a valid concern.
4: Margaret, are you back? You want to finish your thoughts? Yes, thank you. Uh, and, And let's just add to that since history and tradition comes up so much in these opinions from the uh, conservative majority at the very least. When Brown's Board of Education was decided about uh, ending segregation in the public schools, there was an extensive amount of briefing and argument about, well, what would the framers say about about this issue? And uh, the truth is that public education was not there. It was not in place. So if if we're talking about history and tradition applied by these justices, they might apply it and realize that they're not being consistent with their
3: own rules.
2: They're not being consistent with their own rules. And you were alluding to this earlier, and it's something that's been brought up, of course, so much in the difference between the right to bear arms case, the Bruin case in New York, and the Dobbs case. I mean, the day after this court said that uh, the right to bear arms cannot be decided state by state, the right to end a pregnancy, to bodily autonomy, they decided could be decided state by state. And we'll talk a little bit more and reflect a little bit more on the Dobbs case after the break. We are talking with Margaret Russell of Santa Clara University School of Law, and Rory Little of UC Hastings School of Law. And you, are listeners, are talking with us as well about the Supreme Court term that came to an end today, the rulings that came out of it, and what message they are sending to you. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rory Little, Professor of Law at UC Hastings Law School, and Margaret Russell, Professor of Law at Santa Clara University Law School. You, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and questions about the Supreme Court's opinions, this term that just ended about what those opinions represent to you. You can share them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum by calling 866-733-6786 by emailing your questions to forum at org. This listener tweets, It seems like this court wants everything reverted to the early 1800s, riding horses, shooting one another, and other ignorant norms. James writes, It seems to me that the conservative supermajority On the Supreme Court has adopted an opportunistic agenda of rapid and extremely radical rulings, and it is utterly disdainful of the will of the people and is actually anti-democratic. Let me get your reaction to that, uh, Roy Little, if I could. There are a lot of concerns about this court really what some view as on a mission to rapidly remake the country in its own Image and also abandoning, um, you know, abandoning previous jurisprudence.
3: Well, I, I I completely agree with that sentiment. I mean, let's let's think about two things in particular. First, uh, the the three Trump appointed justices undoubtedly have an agenda that they are pursuing uh, rapidly as well as rapidly. Um, and Justice Thomas uh, says out loud in the Dobbs case on abortion. Uh, in the future, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including—he doesn't say limited to—he says including, same-sex marriage, the right yes. to uh, conception, uh, uh, contraceptives, uh, and basically consenting sexual uh, conduct between adults uh, across the board. Uh, that is—that would throw us back, uh, gosh, to 1868 or earlier, uh, which is stunning coming from a black man who. At the time of 1868, you know, Jim Crow and slavery just being recently abolished. But, uh, you know, the idea that this is sort of the world he wants to return to is stunning and, and, and bothersome. Um, and we should also point out that these three Trump appointees, I, I, I have to say this, are illegitimate in the political sense that Merrick Garland was nominated by President Obama would have been confirmed had they held a vote and Mitch McConnell withheld a vote or a hearing, um, and were he on the court, you might've seen a very different history over the next uh, uh, four years. Uh, And so it's hard to even embrace what they're doing in any way other than a sort of an illegitimate uh, ideological agenda. And I I am a student of the court. I hate to say something like that, but boy, right now, let's just hope somebody wakes up and, and becomes a little more neutral.
2: Margaret, what do you think? Either of that listener's comment, or also the point that that Rory just made about Justice Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs, with regard to him talking about Obergefell, Griswold, and Lawrence—same-sex um, uh, marriage, contraception, and sexual privacy. What we, be... yeah, it go could ahead, be Margaret. Could it be? I know. Uh, Are there cases on the docket to potentially challenge these laws? Uh, What would be a defense to stopping these cases from being challenged
4: with this ruling now in Dobbs? Well, in in areas, including Dobbs and abortion, but broader than that, I want to direct people's attention to the way that Justice Thomas has been speaking Uh, speaking, actually, not just writing in opinions about stare decisis. You might remember that during those Supreme Court nomination hearings, um, senators would ask uh, nominees, what is your respect for the rule of law? Even Clarence Thomas was asked, well, what was your awareness of Roe versus Wade? What's your opinion? Um, Clarence Thomas today has made it very clear that he thinks that stare decisis, that is adhering to acknowledged precedent, is, quote, overrated. He thinks it's overrated. He has called it um, just a lazy, a method for lazy thinking, an excuse for lazy thinking. So let's put that together with what he actually wrote in the concurrence in the Dobbs case. I think what that means is that he's saying story decisis means nothing to him. If he thinks that a case was wrongly decided, then he's going to go for it. Um, which, in the case of abortion, is is really stunningly um, wrong. I think, in the sense that there, in the Casey decision, Planned Parenthood, there were justices who have not, who would not have voted uh, for the right to choose. Um, at least, so they suggested, but they were relying upon stare decisis and um, and the the fact that a generation of people had grown up with uh, rights in the area of abortion. So I think Clarence Thomas is, uh, is, is very, very clear. He's not the only one. He's just the one who's putting it out there. Mm. Um, so I expect, especially because some of the cases coming up um, are outright requests to overrule precedent, um, such as uh, a case involving the precedent of Bruder versus Bollinger in affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is what the next term is going to be like, too. Forget starting this
2: So Thomas is saying the quiet part out loud. Let me go to caller Stephanie in San Francisco. Hi,
4: Stephanie.
1: Hi. I actually have a question real quick, and then I was going to say my comment. Um, so what happens um, to the three Supreme Court um, justices that went, uh, that were put in um, under Trump. And they all, in my view, lied under oath, basically. Um, so how do we attack that? And then my comment was um, that they're just desperately out of touch with the 21st century and the, the people that populate our, our nation and the needs of our nation. And it's really time to revisit what the Supreme Court um, you know, their their process, their duration, uh, their terms, et cetera, et cetera, and how do we hold them accountable? Um, mm. Going back to that
2: original question. Thanks. St- Stephanie, thanks. Um, Roy Little, what do you think about the first part of Stephanie's question with regard to, uh, some have raised the question of whether or not uh, the Supreme Court justices committed perjury during their nomination hearings when they said that they would respect Roe or precedent?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I I think it's a valid point, but I want to just sort of laugh a little bit. Everyone knew at that time that the questions they were asked were carefully worded, which is, uh, do you agree that Roe versus Wade is established law? And they all said, yes, we agree that it's established law. Well, what they meant was, you know, under their breath, yeah, it's established until we overrule it. Um, And for Susan Collins to say, for example, oh, I'm just shocked that they voted to overrule Roe versus Wade. Uh, she knew at the time, uh, and she was one of the key votes on Justice Kavanaugh and, and the other justices. Um, so they're not, you're not gonna get them for perjury. Plus you could impeach them, but you need two thirds uh, you know, uh, vote from the Senate to, to carry out the impeachment. So that's not gonna happen. Um, the idea that um, you know, they're desperately out of touch, I mean, that of course is, is the point. Uh, I'll say two things about that. One, we'll see how out of touch they are. The midterm elections coming up in November, hopefully there'll be some reaction to this term uh, from lots of different people, not just people threatened immediately, but people who are unhappy generally. Um, And then I just want to say they've already this morning granted review in another case having to do with election law called Moore versus Harper. That case Uh, would say that state legislatures can effectively change the way federal presidential elections are administered. That is a frightening case, and they will decide that case before the 2024 election happens. So that uh, people who are sort of unhappy about this need to really become civically engaged, uh, maybe in states other than California, to make sure that the legislative side of this doesn't go uh, sort of back to the 19th century.
2: So, so can you help me understand this case that they announced that they're taking? Essentially, it, it's being hailed as something that could reshape our elections because, in essence, it's basically saying that state legislatures have independent power that can't be curbed by state courts, for example, with regard to how they interpret the outcome of an election or other election issues? Roy
3: Little? Yeah, it's a pretty complicated set of issues, but there's a federal statute that talks about how you choose electors and how all all the voting should happen. And that statute dates back to uh, 1878, basically. Uh, And currently there's legislation that would revise that and sort of prevent various things from happening. And that legislation federally is supported by the Biden administration. And I would support that kind of legislation right now. Uh, This case, uh, you may remember some states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, after the the election was conducted, the legislatures said, oh, maybe we could change this. Maybe Trump can pressure us to changing the electors. Uh, That's just not allowed under federal law. Um, But the idea is that if a state legislature does that, there's no judicial check on them. That's what this case is about. Is there Mm -hmm. a judicial check on legislatures who independently decide effectively to change the rules under their own state constitution or otherwise. Um, it's got a lot of wrinkles and complication. but it's a big decision if a majority endorses the idea that there's no judicial check within the state courts of the state legislatures doing what they want.
2: Wow. Well, Curtis writes, the current conservative control of the Supreme Court isn't a conservative legal majority. The court is an ideological police force for the movement of our country to fascism. State control given to radical right-wing legislators will be the final nail. After that decision next term, voting will no longer matter in red states, as Republican-controlled legislatures will have legal standing to overturn results they do not agree with. Uh, it's That's Curtis's view, but do you think it could go that far, or is it more complicated than that?
3: Well, a lot of that rhetoric was, was, was probably things I wouldn't say in class. But, but you know, it, it is not too strong to say that this theory, if it were adopted in a, in, a, in a sort of decisive way, could allow Republican-controlled state legislatures to change political results in the next presidential election. This is why civic engagement on the local level is as important as caring about who gets nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and by the way, before we close, let's celebrate Ketanji Brown Jackson being the first black woman on the US Supreme Court. She was sworn in at noon this morning. It was a very moving ceremony, even though it only lasted a few minutes, um, to watch her take, take the stage. And she will now lend a voice that has been missing from the court uh, since Thurgood Marshall uh, retired and, and Justice Thomas took his place um, and and that was a celebratory moment. Uh, she won't change the ideological balance of the court, but she will change the dialogue sitting around that table of nine people.
2: We're talking with Rory Little and Margaret Russell, both longtime constitutional law scholars about this Supreme Court's term. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Yes, let's hear a little bit of that Supreme Court confirmation um, with Ketanji Brown-Jackson
4: being sworn in. I, Katanji Brown Jackson,
3: do solemnly swear, do
4: solemnly swear,
3: that I will administer justice,
4: that I will administer justice, without respect to persons, without respect to persons, and do equal right, and do equal right, to the poor and to the rich, to the poor and to the
1: rich,
3: And that I will faithfully and impartially
4: And that I will faithfully and impartially Discharge and perform Discharge and perform
0: All the duties All the duties Incumbent upon me
4: Incumbent upon me
0: As an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States
4: As an Associate Justice
2: of the Supreme Court of the United States That was Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson being sworn in today by Justice Stephen Breyer. Margaret Russell, I want to go to you also about some of the points that have just been raised. I think Rory, it's, it's wonderful to hear as both of you are longtime long time constitutional law scholars, you've watched this court for a long time. It feels like there are places you find hope, uh, even as we hear from our listeners, just how strongly this Supreme court term has affected them.
4: Margaret Russell. Well, I don't, I don't want to rain on the parade, but I, <laughs> I am not saying that, um, I'm not calling it hope. Um, I'm calling it uh, resilience and determination in reaction to this rollback court. Something that um, the, the recent call- caller Ann Rory Little raised is that it's really the connection between the vote, the election, and the judicial yes. branch if they take up this case. And the Constitution really does depend on this idea of checks and balances and three branches of government. And it is so clear now how the convergence of, let's say, what is coming out at the January 6th committee hearings about stealing the election and the acceptance and development of cases that are going to challenge uh, government's ability to curtail um, mis- misconduct, really, at the state level in voting. And the executive branch itself, I think, Um, This is very, very troubling. This is not checks and balances. It's very far from it. And this is something that we really need to work on.
2: Well, let me go to caller Karen in San Jose. Thanks for waiting, Karen.
4: Hi. Um, It seems that for all
1: the reasons that have been stated in this program, the vast majority of the public has
4: lost confidence in the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And the way I see it, the only way we're going to have a chance to save democracy is to do what's been done in the past and expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And mm. I'd like to get your your um, guest comments about that.
2: Mm. What do you think about expanding the Supreme Court, Margaret Russell?
4: Uh, I, I think that is not a, a bad idea or a wrong idea. I think it needs to be examined much more carefully than it has been now. And unfortunately, um, because of really the theft of democracy, um, there, haven't been, there hasn't been sufficient time really to consider, uh, although the, you know, the commissions and the panels have considered to some extent. That would take, I think, expanding the court uh, a long time. And, uh, and it's unclear to me that, that it would ultimately be the right solution.
2: Michael in Los Gatos.
3: Quick question. So each state defines its own residence. It's not defined in the Constitution. And you can actually be multiple resident of multiple states for, like, tax purposes. Could, say, California say anyone who pays us a dollar is deemed a resident for purposes of reproductive health services? Mm. Any U.S. citizens? That's my question. That-
2: Michael, thanks. Roy. I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but also just more broadly, there is definitely a call on states to figure out what their powers are in the wake of this Supreme Court.
3: Well, yeah, there's so much on the table at this point. Um, uh, There's certainly an effort in California right now to extend services to women from other states who come here uh, for abortion services. Uh, And I think that's a a, a very great idea. Uh, However you accomplish it, there are many ways you could. Uh, but then the question is what happens to those women if they want to go back to their own state, uh, can those states then criminalize what they've done? Uh, are we going to see forced, uh, emigration to other states, that kind of thing? Uh, it's a, it's a scary prospect and, and there's a lot of legislative activity all around the country now in different directions. Again, the local political scene is as important as the national, uh, you know, on expanding the court, let me just say two things. Mostly, uh, Our very own San Francisco uh, resident, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, who's the vice president, has said very recently that it doesn't matter whether you like expanding the court or not. They don't have the votes. They don't even have the votes within the Democratic Party. So her view is you got to focus on the midterm elections because we don't have the votes to do anything, even if we wanted to. I'm not sure I like the idea of expanding the court because the next administration under a different party might then get into an arms race and expand it again. Uh, And you're on and on. I would rather see justices change. And let me just give one more silver lining. Justice Gorsuch, surprisingly, has become a friend of Native American rights as and he has of immigration rights. Let's keep encouraging that theme.
2: Well, one thing that we know for sure is that time marches on and things keep changing. (laughs) Margaret Russell, Rory Little, thank you both for your insights. Really appreciate it, and thank you listeners. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production
6: of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.